So we're going to be looking at the Trinity today. And I hope that that will help you to see that it's not always the easiest topic to understand, to make sense of, or to talk about. Andrew very helpfully he started off our time together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We don't often start with those sort of formal creeds. Other churches do like to start with those creeds. But we all know that Christians believe in the Trinity. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, we hold that there is only one God, that these are not three distinct gods. It's not like, you know, Zeus and Hermes and um, Hades. I don't know. I, you can tell I get all my Greek mythology from Disney movies. <laughs> Do we think, as Christians, that the Trinity really matters? We know that we're supposed to believe that, that that is the way that God is. But does it make a difference to our lives? Does it make a difference to our faith? We've been looking at the core parts of Christian belief about what it is to be a Christian. And in our confession, in our statement of faith, we find this. We believe in the unity of the Godhead with the distinction of persons in that unity, namely the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, to whom equal honour is due. We believe in the unity of the Godhead, one God, with the distinction of persons in that unity, three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, and to whom equal honour is due. That's fairly straightforward. So many of the early controversies of the church and even a not inconsiderate amount of bloodshed came over this doctrine of the Trinity. Can we insist as Christians that this teaching is necessary to be a Christian? After all, the Bible never uses the word Trinity. Even if it is true, even if God is Trinity, why does it matter? What difference does it make to you as you go out of church today, as you rock up to work or school on Monday? Why does it matter that God is three in one? Now, I want to tackle my first question first. Can we insist that it's necessary when the Bible never uses the word Trinity? Well, it is very true. The word Trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible. But the word was invented later to summarise an idea that we do find in the Bible. And I'm going to give you a whirlwind tour of some of the passages that helped us to arrive at this belief. Okay. Genesis 1, famously, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So at the very beginning, we have God creating, and it's very clear who created the heavens and the earth. And then we have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And we have in verse 26 of that same chapter, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
There is no royal we in Hebrew. And it's virtually unattested to have a, a person singular referring to themselves in the plural. Then we uh, jump to the next one. Matthew chapter 1 tells us the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Such a clear teaching about Jesus being part of the Godhead, being equal with God, that in order to get away around that, the Jehovah's Witnesses have had to change that verse to say the word was a God. But that's not what the Greek says. It says the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. But back in Genesis 1 it told us, told us God created the heavens and the earth. As we jump ahead to John chapter 14, we've already had something from that today. Verses 9 to 11, Philip asked, him to sh asked Jesus to show them the Father. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Romans 9, 5, talking about the people of Israel, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. The Messiah is God over all. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then jumping ahead to verse 8, but about the Son, the psalmist says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. We see all of these places Jesus is being equated with God. But what about the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the church, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When he said just a moment ago, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Acts 28 they disagreed among themselves and began to, to leave after Paul had made this final statement. 
The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet. And we see the Spirit being given agency to speak through the prophets. In many places, the Spirit is portrayed as an impersonal force, a wind, a dove, tongues of flame coming down. But we also read that the Spirit can be grieved, that the Spirit has agency, that the Spirit is a person. So we have all of these things telling us about the divinity of Jesus, the divinity of the Spirit. But we read in places like Isaiah 43, 10 to 11, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no saviour. And the last couple I'm going to bring you through now, there's the great confession of the people of Israel. This was a big part of their worship life. This was a, a verse that was recited commonly in prayers, in festivals. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And then in the New Testament, the Christians have taken this creed and here we find this, their version of the creed in light of the revelation they've seen in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in, her, in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There are more that I could bring you to, but we'll leave it at that for right now. Scripture clearly testifies there is one God. Apart from him, there is no God. Yet it also clearly testifies that there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that they are all God. Not, as Patrick helped us see before, not one God that appears in three different forms, sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Spirit. Not three gods that work together. And not three persons who are all one-third of God in and of themselves. But each is fully God in their own right. According to human reason, that doesn't work. These things don't fit together. It cannot be both three and one. If you think that the Trinity is perfectly straightforward, I'm sorry to say you haven't understood something or you've misunderstood something. Every analogy falls short, whether it's the sun and the light and the heat, whether it's the three-leaf clover, whether it's water and vapour and ice. They can... I'm not anti-analogies. They can all help us to think more deeply about one aspect of what God is like. But no analogy is perfect because nothing in creation is like God. Which, when we think about it, it makes complete sense. If God 
the creator of the universe is all, knows all things and is all-powerful. And if we, his creations, do not know all things and we are not all-powerful, it makes perfect logical sense that there are some things about God that we cannot fully understand. Some things about the way that he has revealed himself that is beyond anything that we can point to, anything that we can compare it to. Which leads me to the first of three reasons why I think it matters that we believe in the Trinity and why it can make a difference to our lives. The Trinity lifts our eyes. The Trinity leads us into reverence. The Trinity reminds us that God is not a magical genie who we come to to just ask for everything we want. God is not someone that we can fully understand, someone that we can fully comprehend. God is not a God of our own making. Every attempt to simplify the Trinity, Arianism, modalism, all of those ones we learned about in the video, Every attempt to simplify the Trinity has rejected something of God's revelation about himself, about the way he has made himself known to us in the Bible. And if we reject the Trinity because it's hard to comprehend, we are left with a God we can fully understand. And that's not a good thing because a God we can fully understand is a God that is made in our own image rather than us being made in his image. But knowing that God is three in one and not being able to fully explain how all of that works because God is greater than we are and God's ways are higher than our ways. It's a reminder to us that God is greater than we can fully comprehend. And it's a reminder to us that this all-powerful, majestic not fully able to be comprehended God is the one who invites us to call him Father, the one who gave his life for us on the cross, the one who dwells among us now in his people. We can get so familiar with God. And it, it, the Bible does encourage us to a level of familiarity and boldness before God. But knowing that he is three in one, that he is greater than we can comprehend, invites us to have a bit more awe in our relationship with God. To look up to God, as I've said, to lift our eyes in reverence that this God who is more than we can ever know, when we think of all that he has made and all that he has done, who are we that he is mindful of us? That he cares for us? And yet he does, deeply. So that's one, that's the first reason I think the Trinity makes a difference to us. The second is that the Trinity demonstrates true unity to us. The church is modelled in that, in that respect on God. When we read Paul's analogy of the church being one body 
with many, many different parts that have different functions, but united in purpose and united in Christ. It's a picture of the unity we see in God himself. Now, there is a distinction, of course. No matter how united we, we, we are, we will never be a trinity like God is. We will never have that level of relationship where we are truly one. But we read in the Bible that what unites God, what, what it means by God being one and fully united, is God is fully united in his will. The will of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit always agree they are always working towards the same goals, the same ends. We read in John chapter 5, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. It's impossible for their will to be different, for what they're working towards to be different. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father, just as, not, you know, a, a little bit like they honour the Father, but in the same way. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. And jumping to verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And we read in these verses, my Father who has given the church, these people to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. They're so united in will, in all that they do, that they're one. God is one. Not just metaphorically, figuratively, poetically, or any other way like that. They are literally one, while still having their distinctions. We see real distinction. We see different roles in their relationship. We hear that the Son submits to the Father, but not the Father to the Son. That Jesus is fully God and equal, but he does not claim equality and exalt himself over the Father. Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus doesn't just you know, claim that, that equality with God. He's willing to humble himself 
on our behalf. And the end result of that is so that every tongue will acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Everyone will worship him. And us worshipping Jesus brings glory to the Father. Because that was what the Father wanted, for the Son to be known, the Son to be glorified. And then I read this one before. Oops, that's not the one I... Yes, this one. There is one God the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. We note that very deliberate difference in the words. Everything was created from God, the initiator, the creator. But everything was made through Jesus Christ, the agent who makes things happen. Different roles within the Godhead. Colossians 1.16 also tells us that uh, in Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created. They're that deliberate choice of words again through him and for him. God seeking to glorify the Son, the Son seeking to bring honour to the Father. God sends the Son. Jesus is the one sent by God. The Father and the Son both send the Spirit, but the Spirit doesn't send the Father and the Son doesn't send the Father. The Father did not die on the cross. Jesus is distinct from the Holy Spirit because he can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was taken into the wilderness. So we see this, there is real distinction between what the Father, the Son and the Spirit do, but they are all united in what they are working towards, united in their will. And this unity in the Godhead is an example for our unity in Christ, the image of the body. We see that Jesus submits to God, not because he is less than God, but because he is the Son and because the Father is the Father and because that is what they delight in doing. And in that same way, the person who helps to stack chairs in the church is no less than the person who gets up the front. But we are united in the same goal of seeing God glorified in the worship that we have in this place. We have different roles. We have different gifts. We have different callings. But we are also united in a, in a slightly different way, but in a way that points to the unity that we see in God by having the same job to do, to bring glory to God, to let people know about what Jesus has done, the way that he came to show us the Father, the way that he came to give his life on the cross so that your sins and my sins could be forgiven, so that we might have everlasting life. 
Unity gives us confidence in our worship and our love of God that there's the Father, the Son and the Spirit, but they are all working to the same end. We can't have the, the Richard Dawkins picture of God, the cosmic child abuser, which has the, the angry father wanting to judge the people and the son coming to protect the people from the father's anger. That is not the biblical picture of God. It is... Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God, but that was God united in will, working to that end so that the wrath that our sins deserved could be poured out on somebody else. And knowing about the distinction of God also affects our worship. Nowhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, do we find anywhere where the, the church explicitly is praying to the Spirit or is directly worshipping the Spirit. Although the Spirit is very important in Acts and in and all that follows. And yet the, the Spirit delights in pointing our attention to the Son, in shaping believers to be more like the Son, in testifying to our hearts that the Son is our Saviour. So the Trinity matters because it lifts our eyes to a God who is more than we can fully understand. The Trinity shows us what unity looks like and encourages us to live in a similar, although not exactly the same sort of unity as the church, doing God's will. And the third and final reason that I'll leave us with today is that the Trinity invites us to love and to be loved. And you might wonder how knowing God is Trinity changes how we think about the love of God. Well, the Trinity matters to us because it reminds us that God doesn't need us. Now, that might sound like a negative, but I promise it isn't. God did not create the world and create people to rule over it because he needed to. God did not make us because he was lonely. God has existed in... It, it says God is love and God has been love, existed in a loving relationship of the three persons of the Godhead who love each other more than any human love that we have ever known throughout all of eternity. God was not lonely. He didn't make us because he had to. He made us because he wanted to. And when we rejected him and went our own way, he didn't come to save us because he had to, because without us he had nobody. He came to save us because he wanted to. Because he loves us. Everything that we have, that he has given us, is an expression of God's generosity. The Father loves the Son and wants to see Him glorified. The Son loves the Father and wants to bring honour to Him. The Spirit delights in pointing us to Jesus, shaping us to be like Him because they love one another and seeing the other person honoured makes them happy. And as every analogy falls short. But you just think of the parent 
beaming with pride as their child receives a, a, a wonderful award. They didn't receive the award, their child did. But our love makes us so happy for someone that we love to be recognised. And how much more true that is of God, whose love is higher and more perfect than ours. And a part of that love between the, peop- the persons of the Godhead, the three and the one, is a gift that is being prepared from the Father for the Son, a bride that he will enjoy for all of eternity, the church. And God, the Son is bringing to his Father a prodigal son returned and restored. Out of the overflow of the love of God for himself, I know that sounds strange, but three in one, everything's going to sound a bit strange. Out of the overflow of the love of God, we have been brought into that love. We have been made the family of God. We who are sinners, who are far away, who had rejected God, have not just been invited to call God Father and to call the Son our Saviour, but we've been invited to enter into Jesus' relationship with the Father. We've been called to be able to come boldly into the Father's presence because in Jesus we have been made children of God. We are sons. Uh, The Bible refers to, to us as sons, male and female, because in that day the sons got the inheritance. We are sons of God because Jesus was the son of God and has brought us into that relationship. The goal of God's love, what it's all going towards, is an eternal community of love for one another that has been expanded from God to include all of us. The Trinity invites us to love and be loved because the Trinity is love. Because God is love. A God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And there is only one God. And these things, they lift our eyes to his greatness. It's the ultimate example of the community and the unity he calls us to. And it gives us a beautiful hope and shows us the relationship that we have been invited to share. That's why the Trinity makes a difference to what we believe and to what we do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done. Thank you that Father, Son and Holy Spirit, before the world began, you were there. Before the world began, you loved one another and you had no need of anyone else. But out of your love and your goodness, you have made us, chosen us, called us to be part of your family through what Jesus has done, through his salvation for us. May we have time as we come to you to remember that you are great. 
You are awesome. And to be awestruck at the fact that you love us and have chosen us. Help us to be united in your will so that we as a church might in our own small way point to the unity that exists in you. And may we be excited, overjoyed, delighted in the love that you have for yourself and in the love that you have, you have called us into, the love that you've shown to us and the love that we can show to you. We pray that you will help us by your spirit to bring you honour and glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.